Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath. Um, interesting episode. I, I think you and I are probably, I, I give you a hard time about railroading, but to be honest, I think we're about on the same sheet of music as far as all that goes for the most part. If anything, I take less investment in characters than you do probably, but that's a part of me being a social gamer as opposed to one of the other many types. Um, yeah. So looking forward to your birthday game and I'll talk to you again soon. Hey Jason, that's a great introduction to this next podcast episode. You were able to comment a lot on railroading and how you feel. And yeah, I think we do agree. And here in this episode of the podcast, we're going to have comments from Arlen Walker of Live from Pelham's Wasteland. Uh, also from EJ of the Arcane Alienist and Daniel Norton from Bandit's Keep. We're going to give some feedback on that episode and on railroading in general and some other cool comments. So uh, here you go. Hey, Carl, it's Arlen. Thought I would call in about some of the stuff you've been talking about. Um, taking away the character's weapons is a really interesting thing because I think, especially if you're in a game where a lot of the the rules and the structure and the engagement comes from combat, it's a real sign that, like, hey, you you can't really solve this problem with combat. And some players, I think, will pick up on that and agree with that, and some will be like, no, wait a second, I'm here and I fight things, and that's that. I think one of the other weird things about it is that a lot of worlds, a lot of, of game worlds don't do a really good job of presenting kind of violence control, for lack of a better term, um, in the way that like real historical people understood was important. So, for instance, like in Roman times, there were a lot of rules about like weapons and swords and armor and things like that. And who was allowed to like legally own things like that and where they were allowed to be that like, for instance, um, Caesar's famous phrase crossing the Rubicon has to do with taking his army across the Rubicon, which was the traditional border of the city of Rome from the the outside areas. And as a general, you were allowed to have an army under your control in the outside areas, but not in the city of Rome. And so there was an understanding that like, hey, it would be a bad thing to have like a bunch of armed men in this city where we want everybody to be pretty peaceful, right? That's like a recipe for violence. Um, and I think that a lot of of settings in RPGs don't really um, lean in to that concept in the same way, you know, for instance, in medieval times, there were rules about what a person was allowed to wear and what sort of weapons they were allowed to carry. So only nobility were allowed to carry um, full knightly swords in a lot of cases. Now, later on in medieval times, there were some um, shifts to that, especially as, you know, townsmen decided, well, we could wear, you know, non-knightly swords and things like that. But what I'm getting at is that in this society, of course, part of the idea is that the nobility will have an inherently um, fairly classically conservative outlook because they're ennobled by ownership of land and things like that. And so 
the idea of being basically as a way to control these characters who have a great capacity for violence, right? That you don't let people who have nothing to lose carry weapons. You only let the people who have a lot invested in the society be the ones who are defending or, you know, capable of violence in that society. Anyway, and we could get into kind of like uh, social theory and all that sort of stuff with regard to that. But what I'm getting at is that I think a lot of RPG settings follow a much more kind of Wild West feel where like if you told a character, no, you can't wear a sword because you're not a noble, they would be like, wait, what? That's ridiculous. Um, because they're operating under the assumption that it's sort of like the Wild West where everybody carries a pistol because that's just what you do. That's that's part of this sort of mythologized version of the Wild West. And so what I'm getting at is that taking a character's weapons away, I think, can be a real shock to players who have not considered that element of sort of setting a realism, for lack of a better term, or who haven't bought into the the sort of core idea that like the officials in that setting are interested in limiting most people's capacity for violence. Um, and it also, I think it's different depending on the, the particular situation. You mentioned one of the players having like an ancestral sword that they were um, worried about giving up. And I, I would be tempted actually in that situation to, depending on their kind of character's character, have some option. Like maybe, you know, if they're a knight, the guards recognize, okay, you're a noble. You're allowed to carry your sword as long as you give us your word that you won't use it and have that be like the thing, right? That like, you know, recognize that this character has, depending on who they are, some sort of expected right within the society, but that might not have applied to that character. So I don't Anyway, as far as railroads go, I don't feel like you're a railroady GM. I think you do a good job of balancing the need to uh, push forward and give the players an impetus to act with giving players a chance to, um, you know, make this world and the story their own and engage with problems the way they like and all of that sort of stuff. I think you do a good job of that. I suspect that a lot of Jason's concerns or jokes about railroading would be um, limited if you did something sort of like what I did with the the Paladin game, where I just sort of said, guys, this is a battle you can't win. You're not going to survive this battle. Are you interested in playing anyway? Um, I think that that is uh, a little bit different. And I think I suspect that that would give Jason less ammunition at the very least to to make jokes about railroading. So anyway. I love it when Arlen calls in, he always gives some sort of historical or scientific note, notice or notation and tries to put things into a historical context, which I think is great <clears throat> as it expands my gaming knowledge and gives me ideas on what to inflict upon the PCs. I really like that idea of an ordered society, and I think that probably would entail, like you said, a session zero where this is set up, much like uh, we are doing with the Warhammer Fantasy game in, um, with Kevin Madison in Dungeon Musings, where he's kind of given us how Bretonia works, right? And I think we've done that 
reasonably well, or I've done that in my home Warhammer Fantasy game. The players know how the verse works. They know the consequences, and that's why instead of standing to fight the watch, they all run and try to hide. So they know they're probably going to be hunted at some point. Maybe that's part of the adventure, maybe it's not, and we'll see. So it's pretty interesting. I, I like I always like the references to Rome, and I remember, I, I feel like Roman legionnaires could not wear their armor and full kit within the city walls of Rome and could only wear that gear when they were mustering to leave the city. Uh, I think the exception was house, well, house guard would, still wouldn't be fully armed and armored like a legionnaire. Maybe Praetorian guard had that, had that exception, it seems like it. I know that when I run Cthulhu Invictus, for example, and things in Rome, players, even gladiators or legionnaires, could not wear their kit in the city. I think that was specified. So everyone had like daggers tucked somewhere. I think that's kind of how they ran things in the show Rome that HBO had a few years ago. Um, very good show, actually. So again, thanks, Arlen, for the, uh, the cool call-ins and definitely going to incorporate some of these ideas. I think you're right, though. I think um, the strange societal nature of many D&D games where you're right, it's Wild West feel, it's almost a, a post-apocalyptic feel where there is lawlessness on the fringes um, is generally what is accepted, right? But then the problem is when you get to town, it should be ordered, right? You can't just start mouthing off to the city guard or, you know, I think meta, a lot of players are like, well, they're, they're men at arms. They only have like up to max eight hit points or something. So they're going to say, well, we can take the city. Ha ha ha. I mean, I think people who have played long enough have looked through keep on the borderlands. Hey, if we get high enough, we can take over the city because this, these guys aren't that powerful. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's uh, how people think, but sometimes I feel that way. And that's why, you know, they ignore, players can have their player characters ignore the rule of law. And finally, as far as being worried about um, Twilight 2000 for the birthday game, I don't think you have any reason to be worried. You're a, a, a quality GM, you know how to get things going. Um, and I'm sure everybody's going to have a great time playing some Twilight 2000. It's a bit of a funky system, it sounds like, just from, uh, I don't have the books, but from hearing about character creation from you and Jason, and then also from, I watched uh, another character creation video on YouTube, and it seems kind of interesting. It's kind of a, kind of an interesting blend of the sort of free league dice pool system with something a little bit different, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's kind of an odd thing. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think we're going to have a great time and uh, no reason to be. Thank you again, Arlen, for those words of encouragement. I'm still prepping. I think I have the beginning and what I want as the end, but I got to fill in the middle. And I think... Uh, I'd like to get, if I can, like primers for how you roll skills, a primer for combat, and a procedural for overland travel. I think that would work out really well if I can get those as handouts and put them in the roll 20 or share them ahead of time, which means I'd have to share them by tomorrow. So I guess I got to get on it.
tomorrow being Monday the 19th. Hey Carl, it's BJ. Uh, love to hear you mentioning Black Sails. I love that show. That was a great show. Um, years ago when that show was fairly new and also when the uh, Fantasy Flights, Star Wars, Edge of the Empire was relatively new. I ran an Edge of the Empire and we just kind of used one of the introductory adventures for my friends. And then we're like, well now what do we do? Because there's not a lot of published material and I'm going to have to come up with my own story. And I thought, I'll, I'll steal from Black Sails and presented a scenario where a ton of spice was there for the taking on an uninhabited planet if you could get to it before someone else recovered it. So that was the, the campaign I was going to run. But everybody immediately recognized the plot hook as coming from Black Sails and so it didn't quite, I wasn't quite as sneaky as I thought. I'd be. I still think that would be an interesting um, campaign to run in, in Star Wars. This is Black Sails and or Treasure Island, but the, the treasure is a is a load of uh, spice instead of a bunch of gold. Anyway, um, as far as railroading, you mentioned kind of, um, I think you said it was Dark Sun where you know, they were immediately when they released Dark Sun, they were tie-in novels, and the first set of modules paralleled those novels, and you were just kind of swept along by the story. It wasn't like the, the players had a lot of agency; they just kind of acted out the plot of those novels. And you, you mentioned that as maybe being a point where things started to shift in second edition. But but I kind of wonder if it didn't start with Dragonlance actually in, in first edition AD and D because there was a similar thing where the first modules in Dragonlance were basically the War of the Lance. They presented the heroes of the Lance as pre-made characters, and they had such rich backstories as, as, as pre-made characters. It was kind of... You kind of didn't want to not use them, um, even though you, you didn't have to. But again, it was that the same thing you mentioned with Dark Sun. It was that you pretty much just... The plot was on rails. You acted out the War of the Lance as the playtest group had done it, which wound up generating the the novels, the, the Dragonlance Chronicles. Um, so yeah, but I do know that I, 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 we may all have a different idea about when that shift started, but you're right. It, it, there was a shift from, uh, open end sandbox to more, there's a plot and we've got to participate in it somewhere in the, the AD. I've got some more great ideas. Thanks BJ for the call. Um, I really, again, I highly recommend black sales. It's a prequel to, Treasure Island. It's a show done by Stars, which very has strong adult content and especially sexual content and a lot of violence. But uh, so for mature audiences only. But I, I do recommend it. I the character who plays or the the actor who plays Captain Flint is incredible, in my opinion. And so is the guy who plays uh, Charles Vane. Um, you have. The actor who played Polo in Rome playing uh, Blackbeard. So it's a pretty neat show overall, and I really enjoyed it. And I don't know, I like, so I, I have incorporated that whole idea of the uh, Spanish treasure fleet sinking into one of my games before when I ran uh, 
a hero system game called Musket and Saber, which was run play by post. And I had um, one person who was a Portuguese navigator who actually survived the storm. Um, and through the course of the play, <clears throat> he survived the storm. He came across the remnants of some of the fleet. He had encounters with Native Americans from that region, was able to finally make it back uh, to, I think he made it either to Tortuga or, or the other Port Royal, or one of those places. And I had, him, I had him kind of blend into history where he ran into the, uh, the former privateers, now pirates, who le had learned about the uh, sinking of the treasure fleet. And since this navigator knew where the treasure fleet was, he kind of gave him the information. The navigator was actually a player character. And then we had uh, him join these groups of pirates to assault the... Uh, where the Spanish were trying to salvage and collect the remains or the, the treasure. So um, it, was, it was kind of pretty cool. I think after, after that assault, I think we stopped. I had other plans, but just the way things go sometimes in games, and especially play by post, it kind of fizzles out. Um, I definitely enjoyed your ideas and comments and about railroading and not, and I will definitely incorporate a lot of these sentiments when I run these games again and I think the main thing is to communicate to the players what's happening and I've talked to these players and and they they don't mind I think they don't mind like I said starting I probably mentioned this already starting either as a prisoner or starting there is one adventure path in Pathfinder where the players loved where they started in an asylum and they had no recollection of who they were which I thought was brilliant and I mean I as an aside, I, I really enjoy Pathfinder Adventure Path, and I think they all have a really good first adventure for the most part, but then sometimes it peters out in the second or third installment. And I think in this particular case, I think this was, uh, I can't remember the name of it, um, but in the second adventure, the players discovered that they were like thugs for some bad dude in the town and uh, when they saved the town and redeemed themselves, they felt that there was no incentive to continue after the guy because what? Who cares, man? He left us for dead. Um, what does it matter? I'm not really, they weren't really about vengeance. They were about really uh, recouping or redeeming themselves and helping out the town. So that kind of ended that campaign because, you know, what do you, how do you do that? You know, I don't know. I guess that's a, don't, that would incorporate domain play, and that wasn't really what they wanted to do. So I think we stopped it. But uh, so I, I think it's again goes boils down to how you communicate to the players what's what the parameters are of the of the world, what is the law like in the world, um, and and go from there. I think it's very interesting. So like the game that I really enjoyed playing in the past and haven't for a long time is Traveler, and they would always have like law levels, and I think that's something that players had to really keep in the back of their mind and the player would have to buy in that they can't just carry their you know plasma rifles down to every single planet sometimes they have to hide things sometimes things can be confiscated um right once you get out the spaceport so i don't know i i don't know if i ever ran into problems with that there are definitely always players who try to smuggle stuff but you know you know how it goes
Hey there, Daniel from Bandits. Keep calling in about, uh, well, I guess it was a couple episodes where you talk about uh, railroading and stuff. I don't know. I mean, it's tough as a GM when you're running pre-made modules, because I know that happens to me every once in a while. There's something in there that really is going to railroad the, the PCs. Um, ideally, you want to try to soften that blow. I personally don't have a problem with getting arrested. I've definitely heard that before, that players don't like to lose their stuff. Players don't like to be arrested. I don't have a problem with that as a player, as long as I don't feel like it's just straight-up railroad, um, which I've definitely experienced in games, and I'm sure I've definitely done as a GM. So, um, yeah, as long as you feel like you have some agency, or if, you know, you're told up front this is going to be the way it is, which I will sometimes actually do, you know, if I know it's coming. I'll just let the players know out of character. Listen, this is going to be one of those situations. But, yeah, I, yeah, railroading is, is a tough one, right? Because with certain types of games, you kind of, I don't want to say you need to, because I would say nothing is ever necessary, but uh, like eh, the example that I would probably give would be many Call of Cthulhu ex uh, adventures, in my opinion, are very railroady, uh, but I, they kind of need to be, or else you would never be able to solve the mystery. You know, it's it's anything with a mystery, I guess you've got to kind of have a little bit of uh, tracks for them to follow. You can't let the players just run around everywhere. I mean, it can be, you know, done in chunks, which is the way Call of Cthulhu does. You know, they give you all these different, like, areas to find stuff. But basically, in the end, you're being funneled down into a very specific place because that's the adventure, uh, which is much different than, like, a hex crawl in a fantasy game or something like that. So uh, I think depending on the game system and what people know going into it, railroading a little bit is not only necessary, but can also be really good. But too much railroad, nah, not for me. Thanks, Daniel, for the call-in. And I think I, as much as I love Call of Cthulhu, you are more or less correct, especially in convention games or one-shot type adventures where it is it does suffer from the quantum ogre effect. You have to get, no matter how you, which path you take, you're always going to have to run into stopping the cult from summoning the great old one, right? That seems to be a very common plot and theme in in um, an adventure like that. I think there are some that do diverge from that. Um, for example, I'm trying to run a long-term sort of campaign, mini campaign called that Innsmouth look. And it does center around shadows over Innsmouth, that storyline. But I mean, right. So we know, so it's a little different in that there's an event that happens and the P the players are caught up in the event, but it really depends what the players think and how they participate. I mean, this, this event happens, I guess is a little different in that it, the event is more of a sandbox or an event crawl, but the players, there's no, there's no end goal or there's no, if you don't do X, the world's going to end. At least I, I feel in that scenario and the players are given a bit more, freedom to involve themselves however they want in the shadows over Innsmouth. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, I'm in the middle of the campaign and one of my players <clears throat> may or may not have Innsmouth heritage. They don't know yet. So um, maybe they'll be on the other side of things. That would be very interesting. I think that interlude might be my <clears throat> intro to recaps. So 
this I'm gonna throw the couple recaps I've done so far this week together. I played in a Savage Sewer Samurai Savage Worlds game run by Arlen Walker of Live from Pelham's Wasteland, and I played with uh, Shay Webster from Roleplay Rescue, and we fought. It was like a conclusion to like a mini mini campaign story arc that Arlen was doing, and we fought the big bad, and it was relatively quick. Uh, session so you know it, I guess it's the, the nature of Savage Worlds I think Arlen thought we would maybe do some uphill fight until we got to the boss but I think we had done that previously so we were able to find and track down the big boss ninja guy and we fought him and within a half an hour we had defeated him and the defeat came from a series of roles for my character and basically as you know, in Savage Worlds, you have ace, aces where the dice can explode. And I rolled a, a 33 on the attack, so an attack with a raise. In this edition, you only get one raise in combat. It used to be, I feel like in a previous edition, that you could keep getting raises. So you get, I got a raise in combat, so that means I add extra damage. And then when I rolled the damage at first, and it was pretty poor, but I had, a, had bennies, so I re-rolled my last benny, um, Arlen had wounded us, and we, it, it was, I think it was a good fight. We were both wounded. My character was already in a berserk rage because uh, once I get wounded, he goes crazy. So, but I re-rolled that last Benny, and I rolled basically 35 points of damage, uh, a 29 basic on the exploding regular side, and, uh, and a 6 So it was, it was for the extra damage. So it was pretty crazy. Uh, I think the ninja was already wounded because of the efforts of Shay's character. Um, I hadn't, I don't think I had wounded it yet, really. Um, and the, and Arlen was all out of bennies for his bad guy. So he was defeated. I guess that's the way Savage World runs. So we spent the rest of the time that we had uh, making characters for our, our ETU East Texas University Savage Worlds game that, that I've been selected to run. So uh, I think it's pretty cool, this group. I think it's a bi-weekly group um, that, take, that works on Fridays and, and we're rotating the, the, the GMing duties. So I think uh, Shay is actually gonna run a Cypher System, The Strange Game, and I'm gonna run some more Savage Worlds with East Texas University, which is kind of like basically Buffy the Vampire Slayer with college kids in East Texas in a made-up university in Pine Box, Texas, called East Texas University, which, you know, I guess it would be akin to, there is a university, I think it's Lamar University that's in Pinewood, Texas, but it's still East Texas. It's pretty interesting. So I may, I may, I'm pretty excited to run this game. I may incorporate that Division one school, big division one school to the south um, that are notorious for not being very bright, but are incredibly bright. I know some great, brilliant people who graduated from that place. So uh, Gigum, maybe, or go, go ETU. I can't remember what the ETU mascot is. Oh my gosh, I should know this. I think it's the Ravens, East Texas University Ravens, which is odd because I don't think there are any ravens really in East Texas. They're 
are plenty out in West Texas. But anyway, I think it's a Raven. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. So the other game I ran, and I guess I'm highlighting these two games together or punching together because it was kind of like we don't, there are only two players in one GM. So I guess I'll call this the play-by-two. So the other game I played in this week was um, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, which will now be called Hyperborea in the third edition. It's going through a Kickstarter right now. And I play an Amazonian warlock who's a necromancer. And uh, it was myself and... Uh, Another player who is a, who is a, I think, I want to say a Viking warrior, but maybe a Celtic warrior. Anyway, so um, I think a Celtic warrior. So it was just the two of us, and we had been separated from the other group after a big combat. So we were trapezing through this island uh, jungle, and we were attacked by some frog creatures who could turn into giant crocodiles. I don't know. It's a weird thing. Uh, it was a pretty tough fight. We didn't get killed, fortunately. We fought, I want to say, six of them. Um, so two on six, and they were probably about three, maybe four hit dice creatures. Um, so we defeated them, although we were pretty injured, and we, um, we then drank some potions that we had, and then we tried to recover. We got fatigued because of the weather and the elements and the rain and climbing up a mountain in the, a jungle covered mountain we made camp and at night we were attacked by some sort of tree creature and instead of fighting it face up we basically uh, did a combination of magic attacks for my character and trying and we successfully spoofed it with um by using dancing lights so we didn't want to engage it and i believe that the the gm um well i guess he made a roll to see if we had tricked the creature and it worked maybe it wasn't super intelligent so it followed the patrol of dancing lights and we hid and got away from it but then of course we came back to our camp and everything was soggy we recovered it and then found a, a cave that was more or less dry um, and did some, some exploration but we decided we need to recover this fatigue we need to recover our health so fortunately there was nothing no encounters and it was a relatively short session again but I feel we got a lot done a big combat a small combat and some exploration and with two people, it works pretty efficiently, so I was pretty happy with the result. And we got a lot of XP, because only two of us that killed a bunch of monsters and got some treasure. I like that even better. We are also scheduled to run our Barbarians of Lemuria game, the finale, but I believe it's like cursed. It just seems like something always comes up. This time, one of the, well, the GM had um, some storms in their area and their power got knocked out and we couldn't play. Um, so the rest of us, well, one of the players decided, well, I heard that you play Deadlands, so he made his, his Deadlands character for the next time. For, I think that's what we're running next. Again, what I like about these groups, and this is our Thursday Audio Dungeon Discord group, we rotate the GM ship, so I'm up, I'm running Deadlands. So after I run, finish that adventure, I don't know, someone else will run something, I hope. So maybe Joe Richter will run some... Pathfinder or Arlen Walker will run some Pendragon or his uh, Bone Crunch uh, game that he's working on. That could be pretty cool. So I just played some Warhammer Fantasy 2nd Edition roleplay game. And this was run by Kevin Madison of Dungeon Musings Podcast and YouTube Actual Play. And I play Gor Goril or Goril, 
Blacktooth, who is um, a dwarven, well, the first career is gambler, but if you could think of him as a rogue type, that's probably what he's going to evolve into. So it was a kind of introductory play session. Uh, we met at a, at a tavern. I did a few things that Gorill might do in his normal routine, which is to try to hustle some breakfast, which was kind of cool. Um, I was able to get some for myself and my pal Odoric, who I don't know if we're friends, but definitely he's a mark, and uh, Gorill hangs out with him a bit. Um, so then we met another player character who came, who had a note for Orderic, uh that his cousin was coming, um, and then uh, a flood happened. And in the flood, we helped with our tavern to not get flooded. Someone else helped uh, rescue a child. Um, and we found um, some, among the debris and the dead, we saw some uh, dead mutants and we were shocked because we hear about them our players right in the old world hear about these things but never really see them so uh, we did some other things while the flood was happening including saving a merchant from some ruffians it was our first taste of combat and it went pretty well for us no one got injured that's a good thing and um, i have to remember all the nuances in second edition combat i would compare it to fourth edition it's not as free-flowing there's a lot of half actions and full actions and a lot of things to remember like what you can and cannot do um so that's it's good i can think once we know it we'll figure it out and it'll run smoothly just like every system so uh, like i said we uh we defeated them um actually i was shocked uh, we did unfortunately kill one of these ruffians when one ran away and my character being from the streets was content to let him learn his lesson and go his pal died i won't do this again but um, the other two players decided to take him down so i guess since one of them is a noble he's not a murder hobo but a murder nobo um interesting it's i guess an interesting style of play i guess i wanted to respect where gorill came from but you know players be players so uh, we did track down where these mutants kind of came from by following the current of the flood and we came to a house with a cellar we snuck down into the cellar and we saw a I guess a an altar of some sort so and then we ended the session where our characters heard some people calling for help so uh, that's what we'll pick up in a couple weeks I do enjoy the old world, and I, I really enjoy this play, and I think it's going to be pretty fun when, uh, with these guys. Well, on this Monday morning, I think I'm going to just uh, give a short outro. Thank you so much for the calls again from Jason, Arlen, BJ, and Daniel. I hope to hear from you guys again. Pretty interesting discussion. Please feel free to continue the discussion about storytelling versus railroading, railroading characters into sticky situations, etc. Um, this week looks pretty game-filled, so expect to have another episode by the end of the week. And uh, all right, happy gaming, everyone, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>